This is the eve of the this is the eve of the lunar month of Cheshvan, which begins this evening. So I want to wish you a, a Shana Tova as well, a new year filled with good health for everyone you love and many, many moments of joys. Uh, this is the second year, not only of the pandemic, um, but of TIU, the Umbrella for Adult Learning at Temple Israel here in Memphis. And I just wanna urge everyone, not only on Zoom, but I know even more of you watching on Facebook, um, to take advantage of the hidden gems in our lifelong learning department, um, all of which is available virtually, even when we do things in person, vaxxed and masked, of course. Um, last night, for instance, was the inaugural session of a grief and loss support group led by the gifted therapist and temple member, Betsy Mandel Carley. Uh, whether the loss is a death, a breakup, a move, a loss is a part of life. And as Betsy says, it's how we deal with feelings of loss that matters most. That's on the first Tuesday of every month. That's just one example of about 50 other possibilities. Every Saturday, Shabbat morning, we study the Torah portion of the week at 10 a.m. Um, I'm looking at Lynn Owen, who you might call the controller, um, the registrar of, of TIU. And we want to get the word out for those of you watching, interested in learning Hebrew. You can do it all from home. Temple's here for you. All four rabbis, occasionally our cantorless soloists, teach. The whole list is available at timemphis.org. And I know you're with us right now for this hour um, via Zoom or Facebook for this three-part series. What I've prepared for us on three successive Wednesday evenings, starting tonight from seven to eight, um, may have been mistitled. Uh, it's my fault, not Lynn's. Um, I'm calling these three Wednesdays, Hatred and History, Judaism's Response in Three Distinct Eras. But it's not really Judaism's response, it's our people's response to the longest running hatred in human history. Uh, Judeophobia, fear and hatred of Jews, which became known beginning with Wilhelm Marr in the 19th century as anti-Semitism. Now, I spoke on the subject of global anti-Semitism on Yom Kippur, um, and I know that many of us are stunned tonight, as I was, by yet another incident in Leipzig, Germany, where the Westin Hotel has launched an investigation um, and suspended employees after the musician Gil Ofarim, who's Jewish, alleged he was discriminated against on Monday because he was prominently wearing a Magen David, a Star of David necklace. And um, this series, though, is not about modern anti-Semitism. I just want to state that for the record, or incidents like this horrific one two days ago in Germany. Um, in my sermon, you can watch on either Facebook Live page or in our archives on Yom Kippur evening, 
uh, Kol Nidre, uh, the worst Jewish problem, um, I address this issue of global incidents of anti-Semitism and my faith in the leader and foreign minister of Israel and the new government, Yair Lapid, who's the grandson of murdered Jews under the Nazis. And he has a strategy for combating global anti-Semitism. We're gonna be looking um, at the modern era two weeks from tonight. We're gonna to look at the medieval era next Wednesday, but tonight we're gonna to look at the rise of Christianity and its legacy of, of blood. Um, and for those of you on Zoom, I'm gonna be staying after we say farewell to our Facebook Live friends um, so we can engage in dialogue. But first the uh, material. Um, in all three sessions, the big idea that I wanna propose and that will emerge is one that I know many of you agree with. And that is, it is easier to misperceive or even hate the other when you don't know the other. Hence the nefarious secret Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. It's invisible. Rich Jews meeting to take over media or politics, or with regard to racial hate, with violent crime this week in Memphis, tragic homicides from outside college campuses to elementary schools. It's easier to talk about them versus us. Or even for those of you who lived in Memphis in the 1960s, and don't have a racist bone in your body. If you never saw black people at the Memphis Zoo because they were only permitted to go on Thursdays, that was black day at the zoo. So long as you didn't see it, you didn't know about it. So long as you don't know a Muslim, or a poor family in the Orange Mountain neighborhood, or a Palestinian Christian on the West Bank, it is much easier to misperceive, demonize, and hate. Equally worse, as we're gonna see hopefully in our hour, is when you do know the other and you demonize to dominate, which was the case with the fledgling early church and Pauline Christianity. The life-changing book for Christians by James Carroll that I recommend to all my seminary students and all my ministerial friends is entitled Constantine's Sword. I see it on my shelf. It's over 700 pages. Um, it's worth reading if you have the time. Um, and when Carol says that Christianity would never rid itself of the culture and sin of Jew hatred until the New Testament is newly understood by all Christians as documents corrupted by the human failings of their authors. It sounded alarms 
Carol is a devout Catholic and he recommended even in his seminal work, um, Constantine Sword at the end, that the Roman Catholic Church convenes a historic third Vatican Council to directly confront Christian anti-Judaism and its tragic consequences. In a, in a much shorter book, if you wanna read by Mary Boys of Union Theological Seminary, the book is called, Has God Only One Blessing? She compares the way Christians should understand the New Testament with the way Americans understand the Declaration of Independence as a document of truth mediated by individuals in a particular society. So just as some biblical references to women um, or slaves have to be understood in their context because translation alone cannot solve the hostility toward slaves in scripture or women or Jews in the New Testament. The New Testament is about many things. Um, it's principally about God's covenant with man. Um, the teachings of Jesus are deeply Jewish, love one another, social justice. But if you wanted to reduce it to its anti-Jewish argument, the sentence, the sentence would run as follows. God used to love the Jews, but they became fixated on law and sacrifice, refused to attend to God's will and his prophets. So God decided to replace Torah with Jesus and replace Jews with Christian Gentiles. And the Jews then killed God's son who had been sent to bring this news to the world and that is why God destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews and condemned them to be hated and to suffering on earth and in eternity. I know that's a lot. This is the virus distilled to its essence. But the truth is, your Christian friends and my Christian friends today do not focus on the anti-Jewish messages of the New Testament. Um, one faith leader said, the anti-Jewish messages never register with me. It was like growing up, it was like hearing news stories about a sport that doesn't mean anything to you. It just didn't trigger anything. And I suspect that's the case with just about every Christian we know. Whether one catches it or not, however, anti-Judaism is in the plain reading of the New Testament. And generally speaking, the later the book, the stronger its presence. I'll give you one example. John's gospel, which is the latest of the four gospels, probably written as late as 120. Um, Jesus was crucified in the 30s. So this is like 85 or 90 years later. John contains 71 references to Jews compared to 16 in the other three earlier gospels combined. Now, why is that? because the author of John preached at a time and in a place when it was becoming increasingly clear that the Jews were not going to accept this new notion of a blood Messiah 
or of a resurrection being the proof of a Messiah, because we're all going to be resurrected according to Judaism. The proof was the world was going to be restored to harmony. Um, so the only hope for the survival of this fledgling unofficial faith within the Roman Empire lay in winning Gentiles who are not Jewish over to the cause. So why not turn the Jews into the historic opposition to Jesus? And while you're at it, why not score some points with Roman authorities who were absolutely the most brutal, heinous murderers, Pontius Pilate, you know, from other sources, smashed babies' heads. I mean, we know about the Romans. So why not score some points with them by setting up the Jews to take the fall for Jesus's death. I didn't say crucifixion because, of course, Jews don't believe in crucifixion as a form of the death penalty. It was a Roman form. So Jesus, the Jew, crucified by the Romans, becomes Jesus, the Christian, murdered by the Jews. And until the last hundred years or so, we are living in the greatest period of time in human history when it comes to interfaith relations. But until around the Shoah, the Holocaust, the temperature of Jew hatred among Christians was not lowered. The Catholic liturgy spoke of Jews as sinful, cursed, perfidious. That's a direct quote. Protestants, by the way, I didn't mean to pick on Catholics. By the way, um, Protestants were equally heinous in the treatment of Jews in Christian lands. Um, Martin Luther's tract concerning the Jews and their lies, it's a direct quote, it was cited by Hitler himself and the Nazis. But since the Shoah, the relationship has been recalibrated. Christian churches have taken pains to reject and repent of the anti-Semitism in their teachings heritage, and practices. So this series is called Hatred and History because I believe historical context matters. And context means understanding that whatever the malignant consequences of certain New Testament passages, as they were read in 1095 by the Crusaders before they killed Jews, or in 1933 by Nazi Christians. The intent of these words, when they were first set down after the temple was destroyed in 70, let's say they were written in 120, the intent was neither anti-Jewish nor threatening to Jews. Why do I say that? Because it's almost certain, I, I know there may be some who challenged this, but it's, it's clear that these sentences were written by Jews arguing with other Jews about an internal matter. What form their faith should take after something worse than the stock market crashing happened. God's house was burned down. The temple was gone. And the words these Jews used against their brothers and sisters 
if you study Bible, the Hebrew Bible, they were the same um, standard polemics drawn from the pages of Samuel, Psalms, and other Hebrew prophets. And finally, those Jews who believed in what Paul was teaching, which we'll get to, um, and even when you add the Gentiles, most of the Jews didn't take to what Paul was doing. They numbered maybe 100,000 in the year 100. Now, I want you to contrast that with an estimated 5 million Jews within the Roman Empire. 100,000, maybe 5 million Jews. So the ones who were following Paul and the apostles, um, they had no more chance of bringing down the 5 million Jews. I know I may get into trouble for saying this, not because it's political, but because some of you may disagree with me. It would be like, say, it would be like the January 6 protesters um, at the Capitol bringing down our entire nation. I'm not saying it isn't a serious threat to democracy, but there is no way that um, 100,000 new believers were going to bring down 5 million Jews in the Roman Empire. So Christianity did begin among some Jews. And we all know, I think you do, that words spoken in a family conflict should never be used outside the family to hurt other people, to hate other people, or to kill people. Um, whenever I was falling asleep um, <laughs> watching cable in the old days, I used to watch the British Parliament. Have you ever watched them? They yell at each other. It's like a Monty Python live special. They sling mud back and forth at each other. But whatever they're doing can't be anti-British. But if an enemy of Britain used that as uh, their epithets against each other, they're yelling at each other, then it would be anti-British. Similarly, watch the Knesset. I know it's in Hebrew. Hopefully you can watch it in translation. It's as bad as the British Parliament. These parties in the Knesset are not genteel. But if a KKK group at a march took the words that are said in the Knesset, those are fighting words. Now, this does not render the New Testament benign. A Christian opening her Bible tonight after dinner, if she reads Matthew 27, 15 through 25, which is about Pontius Pilate, who he knows is a bad guy, but the way it's portrayed in Matthew, he attempts unsuccessfully um, to release Jesus rather than Barnabas. And it concludes with Pilate, who again, who we know was brutal, but who in Matthew says, I am innocent of this man Jesus's blood, followed by then the people, the Jewish people, as a whole, answered, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. 
Well, those words led to pogroms against Jews inspired by the church. So it is a Christian moral responsibility not to allow people to come to these texts without context. My teacher, my mentor, professor, many of you know, I've brought her here numerous times. She's now emerita at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Amy Jill Levine. She thinks what is most helpful is the exercise of having Jews and Christians reading these texts together so that the Jew can see that most Christians do not read with anti-Semitic eyes. And also so that the Christian can see that when John has Jesus say to some Jews, you are from the devil, it can have a very personal impact on real people and real lives today. John has Jesus saying in chapter 844, you are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do the devil's desires, your father's desires. Jesus was speaking to Jews from within Judaism. There you go. Thank you, Russell. Jesus was speaking to Jews from within Judaism in the first century, not against Jews hundreds of years later. He was speaking to members of his own family. Now, I confess that my wife and I did on occasion call our youngest Jewish daughter a little devil within the confines of our home. God forbid, though, someone take that conversation out of context and use it as a justification for hurting, maiming, or killing Jewish children like our Julia. And yet that's precisely what Christians did to Jewish children throughout the centuries using John 8.44 as validation scripturally. Medieval church art refers to Jews as children of the devil, drew elaborate paintings of Jews looking devil-like, complete with hooves and horns. Um, my colleague at Rhodes, and many of you know, uh, an amazing writer and scholar, scholar, Professor Steve Haynes at Rhodes. He, he wrote a book uh, which won a national award, The Jew in the Christian Imagination. You'll understand how faulty history can lead to fatal consequences. And so when I taught future ministers for over 20 years at the Memphis Theological Seminary, I used to do what my teacher, Amy Jill, did at the front of her classroom before her seminary students. To these future pastors who now serve all over Memphis, they tell me they still remember it. I would show them this large frame picture, uh, photograph of two of my kids, Kara uh, and Jake, when they were young, younger, and I was teaching ministers. I would say, don't ever say anything from scripture that would hurt these two Jewish children. And don't ever say anything that will cause a member of your congregation to hurt these two Jewish children. So for the next section of our evening, you may be asking, say what? 
beyond that verse from John or Thessalonians or Matthew. Let's look at Paul because I'll give you the summary and then I'll go through the whole analysis. Paul's notion of a crucified Messiah who brings about salvation from death by his blood, it's not a Jewish idea. That was a message that resonated with Gentiles, not Jews. And Paul found great success in this new religion with Gentiles. Uh, look at the names of the books in the New Testament, Galatians, Corinthians, all these places, Romans. Um, this explains why the followers of Jesus quickly moved from being a small Jewish sect to a large Gentile church. Paul tries to evangelize Jews away from Torah, but since the Torah was and is viewed by Jews as a gift of love and not a burden as presented by Paul, we can see in Pauline Christianity and Dr. Mark Verman, Michael Cook of Blessed Memory, um, bear this out if you want to go beyond my brief synopsis of an entire course. I found that the best attendance for these series is a three series. I'd love to do a six series, but I'm going to try to cover Paul tonight, next week, medieval um, selections, and then the modern period two weeks from tonight. And those on Zoom, we'll have a little conversation after. Paul, though, just so that everyone's on the same page, he's the, he was the author of a series of letters which constitute the earliest writings of the New Testament. And his epistles were comprised, we know, more than a decade prior to the first of the Gospels, Mark. And so fundamental are Paul's writings that they occupy... Um, um, ideas like original sin, um, the second coming, even the name New Testament, it stems from his letters. So it's fair to say that he was the pioneering ideologue of Christianity. And he laid the groundwork for two millennia of Christian anti-Semitism, which thankfully has been removed by the church. But we need to look at this because um, Paul did not always harbor that animosity. In his early years, Paul, then known by his Hebrew name, Saul, was an extremely devout Jew. He was a self-described Pharisee. There are only two self-described Pharisees, himself and Josephus. Um, and he's, his radical transformation from being a Jewish zealot to, be, to being really an assailant against both Jews and Judaism um, is borne out in, in uh, the essay by Dr. Mark Verman, in books that you can read by Jewish um, scholars. Um, the anti-Judaic screeds are pervasive throughout his letters, um, but they're not an end in themselves. You got to understand, again, the context of this otherworldly utopian vision. Paul imagined that he and his followers 
comprised an exclusive community of believers who would be granted eternal life. And that it was going to end in his lifetime. And that within the context of this innovative orientation, Paul felt it necessary to repudiate Jews and Judaism. Now, I'm not going to be able to spend as much time as I want to, but you know how we talk about body, mind, soul. We talk about um, the moderns tend to locate a person's mind in the brain. But for the ancient Egyptians, Israelites, Greeks, the heart was the locus of human individuality. And that's why in our sacred scripture, in the Jewish Bible and in Christian scripture, it's all about the purity of heart that is most important. And we could spend the rest of our hour on the heart in the Hebrew Bible and its relevance for Paul. Um, a little about Paul, he wrote all of his letters in Greek. Um, he would address Jews in, in Hebrew. You know, he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in, in the book of Acts. I'm brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. He's probably talking about the grandson of Hillel, um, Rabban Gamaliel I, who was the leading rabbinic authority. Um, but I think before I lose you, um, if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, you would see the importance of the heart all over. Oh, the Shema, right? What's the Vahavta after the Shema? Love God, the Cholavavcha, with all your heart, right? And these mitzvahs which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, right? Um, what does King David say in the Psalms? He says, Lev Tahor Barali, Psalm 51, create a pure heart within me, God. Create a new beginning, a, 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 a new heart. So uh, we don't have time to explicate this, but for Paul, the idea of a new creation rooted in an altered heart was his shift from being a zealous Jew to the promoter of a new religious orientation that historically, contextually um, became adversarial at the time. Um, Jeremiah, he literally parrots Jeremiah. I mean, Paul knew Jewish scripture. Um, and the biblical prophet Jeremiah is this recurring theme um, with Paul. So let me just give you one example. I don't want to lose you. Um, in Jeremiah, in chapter 31, there's an extended prophecy on the future restoration of the Jewish people that's going to profoundly impact him. Jeremiah predicts, see, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new testament, a brit chadashah with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand. I will put my Torah into their innermost being and inscribe it, you guessed it, upon their hearts. Now, what Jeremiah is laying out is a vision of our ancestors' return from exile 
in which the Israelites will become entirely committed to the eternal covenant. It's like a renewal. In the past, remember, Israelites strayed. God always takes them back. Golden calf. God takes us back. So this is the renewed covenant will succeed because divine guidance will be written upon the hearts of the returning Israelites. Wholehearted devotion to God. Well, you can imagine what Paul does with that. He sees that as an opening to a completely new covenant, not a renewed one. Um, so in his epistles, and I encourage you to read the New Testament, um, I think every Jew should, we find the initial references to many of the core principles of Christianity, such as the doctrine of original sin, which isn't Jewish, namely that all humans are fundamentally defective as a result of um, the violation of God's command to Adam. Um, um, the, and that the only antidote is the salvific power of belief in Christ. So um, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, you know the phrase, Jesus died for our sins? That's Paul. Um, in his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, he outlines the event that many contemporary evangelical Christians refer to as the rapture. It's from the Latin for being snatched up. Um, this is also known as the second coming, which Paul envisioned would happen during his lifetime. And it's when Jesus would start to descend from heaven and his followers, both dead and alive, would be snatched up and meet Jesus in the sky. And Paul exhorted Gentiles that if they choose to observe the burden of the Torah's laws, that would nullify God's gracious gift of allowing his only son to be crucified. So according to Paul, justification is only, by the way, that means being righteous in God's eyes is only through faith in Christ and not through works or mitzvot of the law. Um, so Paul is arguably the most important figure who revolutionized the Jesus movement, changing it from a small Jewish sect, following a social justice activist in the first century who said many things that are deeply Jewish. I mean, the golden rule is like Hillel's, you know, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. But Paul trans, um, changed it into a, a, a Gentile universal religion. Now, he was a controversial figure. He um, underwent a profound religious transformation in midlife. Um, he, he comments in Galatians uh, the, the revelation that altered his life. I want to read you the New Testament. But when God, who set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. Did you hear the prophetic predestination? This is exactly what Jeremiah says 
Um, Jeremiah says, I'm, I'm, I'm not changing a word from Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me before you were born. I created you in the womb. I selected you before you were born. And I assigned you, Jeremiah, to be a prophet to the nations of the world. Anavila Goyim. Paul claims that he was destined by God even before birth to be a public preacher like Jeremiah, but he specifically identifies his target audience as Gentiles. Um, now, although Paul doesn't discuss the circumstances of his spiritual conversion in any detail, Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, he offers specificity. And this is the story some of you may have heard or learned, the well-known story of Paul on the road to Damascus. And he's blinded by a celestial light and he's chastised by a heavenly Jesus for persecuting him. And according to Luke, Paul then has to be led by his fellow travelers into Damascus where he was miraculously healed by Ananias, Ananias, a Jewish follower of Jesus, Paul was then baptized into the sect. He begins preaching in synagogues that Jesus was the son of God and the Messiah, whereupon some of the Jews found that outrageous. They conspired against him and he fled. I'm skipping my notes so that I can get in the main points. Let's talk about Paul and the Jews. After his transformation and change of heart, his relationship to Jews and Judaism is problematic at best. If you read 2 Corinthians, um, among the many hardships and tribulations he endures as an apostle of Jesus, he says, and I quote, five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. So having suffered so much physical abuse from his co-religionists, it's not surprising that Paul, the self-proclaimed zealot, expresses his animosity and towards his fellow Jews in explicit statements of condemnation. And we talked about briefly how he was an astute student of Jeremiah's life. Um, but he goes a bit too far. Um, I mean, by, by the way, Jeremiah, why am I bringing him up again? Jeremiah is the one who talks about being constantly vilified, persecuted, wishes that he had never been born, plots to kill me as the Hebrew prophet, very similar to the way Paul sees himself as the new messenger of, 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 of Christ. Paul was the first to make the blatantly false accusation that Jews were Christ killers. Um, he says in 1 Thessalonians, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, they displeased God, opposed everyone by hindering us. Um, it's important, friends, to emphasize, if this is your introduction to this subject, Paul knew full well that the Jews did not kill Jesus. 
he knew that it was the Roman governor, Pilate, who ordered Jesus' crucifixion. There were thousands of Jews like Jesus who were being crucified by the Romans. It said King of the Jews on the cross. Didn't say King of us. Jews don't crucify. Romans do. He knew that. And I'm not saying this with any glee. Um, there is a, an, a, certainly an irony um, that Paul, do you know how he died? He was beheaded by Roman soldiers while preaching in Rome in 67 CE. He knew how brutal the Romans were. Um, and in respect to his con other contention that the Jews killed the prophets, he says that in Romans 11. Do you know what scripture says of Elijah? He claims that Elijah was pressing a suit against Israel and that the Jews had killed God's prophets. But if you really read Hebrew scripture, it's actually the pagan non-Israelite Jezebel who previously ordered that God's prophets be killed. And now she was trying to have Elijah murdered as well. So what he does is he reinterprets and misrepresents the biblical passage concerning um, Jewish culpability in killing God's prophets. It's possible, my friends, that Paul was once again reading his own experience into a biblical text. But this history caused tremendous hatred. I'll give you one more that you may have heard in 2 Corinthians. To this very day, Whenever Moses is read, it says in 2 Corinthians, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to Jesus the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, what he has done cunningly is refashion the end of Exodus 34. Remember when Moses returns from Mount Sinai with the second set of tablets and the people are afraid to approach Moses because his face radiated with divine glory because he had been speaking with God. Um, some, the word Karen, the name Karen, Karen can mean about five things in Hebrew. It can mean horns. It can mean nails. It can mean light. It was the light of God emanating. So Michelangelo got the wrong translation, you know, and that's why you see Jews with horns. Um, but Moses wore a veil when he interacted with the people because he was radiating the divine glory. Paul reframes the story by claiming that the Torah was not divine. It was Moses's composition. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. So in Paul's version, the veil isn't something Moses wore. It's emblematic of the ignorance and intransigence of the Jews who do not accept Jesus as Christ's Lord. When one becomes a believer in Jesus, Paul contends, the veil is removed and the divine revealed. I don't want to go into all the other books, but Hebrews, it's a sustained critique of Judaism, arguing that the new covenant mediated by Jesus is far superior to the old covenant of Moses. Um, and all of its proof texts, you have heard it see, said X, 
but I have, but, 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 but I say why. The X is the Torah, often not accurate. By the way, this is not a refutation of faith among Christians in Jesus. I, I think that people should not judge anyone by their theology. And I wish some Jews acted the way many of my Christian friends do. So they're the or Mormons whose theology I don't necessarily subscribe to, but they're among the most honorable, ethical, decent people. So this talk is not a polemic against Christianity. It's just exposing the history, Paul's context, and the damage it can do um, to the audience. Unintended consequences the last 2,000 years. Um, so I'm going to skip. Um, the pivotal formulation here is what is called um, replacement theology. In other words, God has rejected his people, the Jews, and only believers in Christ are the true Jews, which in early Christianity, my friends, became known as Verus Israel. That's the Latin for true Israel. Um, by the way, I have notes here. I'm going to end on time. But what you see here is not only an important element of Paul's repudiation of his contemporary Jews. He then goes back to the motif of the heart in the book of Romans differentiating between outward piety and internal um, devotion. And what he does, what's the oldest continuous Jewish practice, R-I-T-E? Circumcision. And he claims in Romans that um, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external. Rather, it's a matter of the heart on the inside. He changes the meaning of circumcision to something spiritual by the spirit. And so real circumcision is a matter of the heart. So he is dismissing the significance of circumcision. As he says in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is, is anything. Um, I want to be clear. Um, when he was with Jews, he lived as a devout Jew. When he was with Gentiles, he ignored Judaism because he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That didn't go well. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. So Paul is concluding that like Abraham, even without circumcision, he is continuing the covenant. Um, 
And I'll, I'll end with just one more biblical text that is upsetting, but people don't normally get. His entire biblical argument is based on, remember Genesis 15, when God takes Moses, um, Abraham outside, and God says, look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And God says to him, follow me closely, so Abraham shall your offspring be. So God was promising to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Paul ignores this entire verse, and he builds an argument on the last word, offspring. He says, I want to quote to you. I'm just quoting New Testament. Now that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, but it says, and to your one offspring, that is, to one person who is Christ. So, his contention that offspring is a noun in singular form is grammatically incorrect. And by reinterpreting God's promise to Abraham and our people as referring to one single individual Christ instead of the, the people Israel, he's dismissing and disparaging not only Abraham, but all of Abraham's offspring, the Jewish people. Um. So this is um, the beginning of more that I can share that caused so much hatred and enmity towards Jews that thankfully the church has now said um, it is no longer the supersession or the um, conversion of the Jews. It's the survival of the Jews that we must work toward ensuring. Um, so in sum, his larger thesis is that those who come from Abraham and call themselves Jews are not the true Israel but it was rather believers in Christ who comprised the authentic covenantal community. And they're to be found not in earthly Jerusalem enslaved by the burden of Torah. By the way, this is very important because they talk about the Torah. He talks about it as no Moses law. If you remember nothing else about Judaism, remember Torah does not mean law. It means guidance. It means teaching. Now, where do we see this polemic in services on Friday night and on Saturday morning and every Jewish prayer service? Where do you see this polemic play out in the second century? After, uh, before the Shema. Remember, there's the Baruch Hu. Then in the morning, you thank God for the morning. In the evening, you thank God for the evening. Then there is always this love prayer. Ahavat olam and ahava rabah, depending on whether it's morning, but it means the same thing. Great love, eternal love. By the way, that phrase is Jeremiah's phrase. Ahava rabah, ahavat olam. Comes from the prophet that Paul modeled and trying to say, it's not the renewal, it's a new religion. So what did the 
rabbis in comprising the Jewish prayer service do? God's greatest gift of love is not a crucified Jesus or a blood savior who atones for other people. God's greatest gift of love is the Torah, which is not a burden. I mean, read the prayer book. Now you know the history behind the prayer. It, it lengthens our days. It adds joy to our life. It gives us guidance. It teaches us a life of mitzvah. Baruch ata Adonai, Oheva mo Yisrael. What's our response to all this? Thank you, God, for loving us so much that you gave us this precious gift of Torah. Shema Yisrael. And then you sing the heart of it all. The watchword of the one God. So history matters. And what I've tried to do tonight with just one example of Pauline Christianity is show how scripture, when not understood in its historical context, not only makes bad theology, it leads to blood libels against Jews. It leads to the charge of desecration of the host in the medieval church, which claimed that Jews would secretly stab the wafers to reenact the killing of Jesus. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Remember the bubonic plague? The charge that Jews poisoned wells as children of the devil when we know that it had to do. And so, so much damage has been done. And the beautiful thing, and I know Christian friends are watching this too, and what, what gives me hope is, is my dear friend, um, Steve Montgomery of Blessed Memory, and all the ministers in Memphis. Um, we are one. Um, one God means one humanity. Different paths to the same destination. As the New Testament and others have said, if my House is full of many mansions. Why do we all have to live under the same roof? We all stand in the cathedral of the world. A cathedral has many stained glass windows. The sun or the moon outside my window on this new moon night of Cheshvan is God. The light shines through all the windows. And there were all refractions of God's light. The New Testament, the uh, Hebrew Bible, are all are reaching out to God and our different paths, whether it's the life of a path of mitzvah, the path of Christ, or the way of Allah, or our Hindu friends. And I think we've reached a point in history where we can honestly say, a fundamentalist would say, the light only shines through my window. And a fanatic would smash all the other windows except his. And thank God we live in the greatest country in the world, and God willing, Israel will rise to be a light unto the nations, as Jeremiah was called to be, um, where we can live in harmony with people of different faiths. But we have to face history to understand ourselves. 
Thank you for all of you on Facebook. We're going to end this now, Lynn, if we'll leave that. And um, all of you on Zoom, please stay on. Okay, we're no longer live. Please, anyone um, comment. Uh, thank you for spending time tonight. I know it's, uh, it's really sweet of all of you to take Wednesday to learn. And hopefully what I shared was something at least you didn't know before, at least part of it. Russell held up a book um, during it. Um, I wasn't ignoring you. Did you want to make a comment, Russell, please? Any reaction? The Bible with and without Jesus, right. <laughs> yes. They're, they're, this is... Uh, Explain it. Possibly, it's an important book. Amy Jill Levine's latest book because it was published in 2020. And she does have a collaborator with it, uh, Marx Vi Brettler, who apparently is also... a an expert on the same subject from Duke. Uh, yeah, yeah, by the way, I want, I want to recommend uh, the book that they collaborate on, The Jewish Annotated um, New Testament. This is, it is fabulous. That um, is a fabulous commentary. That, 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 thank you, Terry. Yeah, there are 10 essays in the back of the book which cover in greater detail Incredible. what I'm covering. Well, the theme behind this is that biblical uh passages can be read in many ways and I think they what they're trying to do is promote respect between the different groups from the way on the way that different biblical passages can be read well stay on that I mean one, one of the uh, Amy Jill has written so many so many important books. Yeah. Um, Jesus, the Misunderstood Jew, is a must-read. Um, uh, her book on parables, um, but you know she she's the one uh, who talked about the Good Samaritan and how every Christian minister learned it wrong. Um, if I were to say to you, you, you pull up to us to a, a, a traffic light. Okay, everybody, complete the sentence: green, yellow, red. Red. There you go. Okay, I'm going to date myself. I love the Three Stooges. Oh, gosh. Curly, Larry, and... Oh, no. Very good. If I were to say priest, Levite, <laughs> the next thing you would not say is... Samaritan. Samaritan. <laughs> How do you call Jews to the Torah? Priest, Levite, Israelite. Israel. Yeah. Israelite. So this also, I didn't have time. I, it was in my notes. The church needed to set up a straw person, a straw man. So they made it sound like the priest was really into purity. He couldn't touch the dead body on the side of the road. The Levite didn't care. You know, those Jews, they're all concerned about purity. First of all, the priest was married. I mean, he was only in a state of purity when he was in the temple, holy of holies. And, you know, you don't know when anybody's in, in a state of impurity. You don't know when women are menstruating. You don't know when men are doing their Levitical or priestly duties. So it had nothing to do with that. The point of Jesus's story, which is beautiful, is the Samaritan was the outsider, was the person like who everybody hated. And the story is the Outsider can become the insider. Instead of red, green, yellow, or Molary, curly, instead of priestly, Levite, Israelite, 
priest, Levite, even the Samaritan is a child of God and can rescue someone in a ditch. It, but because of the misreading, the polemic against the Jews, and by the way, it makes a better sermon. <laughs> I mean, it makes a better Jesus message. That's the Jesus message without the baggage. But you can imagine, you can imagine controversy among Christians with this. You know, Amy Jill is cr criticized by my evangelical pastor friends because she just basically says Jesus is a first century Jew and was a social justice crusader. We need him to be more. Um, and so you, you, you want me, you want me to um, contextualize all these anti-Jewish passages? You know, it's like, um, it's all the word of God. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So um, I actually, I won't divulge names, but I, when I was very active in leading the Memphis Ministers Association as its president, I have friends who are evangelical pastors and it really concerned me because they get on Sunday mornings, very prominent churches in Memphis, thousands of people would listen. And what they were saying was a misreading of scripture. And I wasn't trying to refute their faith in Christ. I just begged them. I would meet with them. I would share with them. Um, and that's not what they learned in seminaries. So they mm -hmm. wouldn't honor it. You know, the idea that the God of Israel was the God of law and stern and, and it was distant, never had a relationship that was warm. It took Jesus, the Jew, to bring to the world this new idea that God is his son. So I would meet with these senior pastors and show them God has called 70 names. God has called a father. Where do you think he got our father who art in heaven? That's Avina Malkenu. God has called a mom a womb. God has called a lover. God has called a soul friend. Um, so you still have vestiges of this misreading. I don't think people watching Sunday morning in Memphis catch it, but it's still there. And there are, the Catholic Church is working to expunge it, Presbyterians, Methodists, um, Presbyterian USA, um, and the mainline churches are trying to um, expose it and, and address it so that people can get to their faith in Jesus um, and not, I guess in one sentence, anti-Semitism is the fatal flaw in Christianity's long and noble attempt to serve God. Micah. Oh, hey, mom. I didn't yeah. see you. Yeah. Hey, Mama. I got my pretty picture on there. Yeah, you look beautiful. What's up? Thank you. Well, I just want to address that point. And um, uh, something that has stayed with me for the last 20 years, when James Carroll came to Naples, Naples to speak. Oh, wow. How was he? He was phenomenal. And his whole, he was expunged by the church, but he has such an understanding of this. And his book is Constantine Sword, I, I think is such a must. Um, and I'm wondering if he is still on the speaking circuit because uh, he talked about how he went to dinner with his 
Jewish sister-in-law that his brother or his Jewish brother-in-law that um, one of his siblings married a Jew. And he said, it just hit him, you know, right in the, in the, in the gut that this is a wonderful, beautiful person. And what are we preaching in terms of, um, of Judaism and the church? And so he went against the church. He was, I don't want to say vilified, but he mm-hmm. is a dynamic transformational speaker. And uh, I looked it up and it was 2001. So I wonder yeah. if he's still out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not good at multitasking, mom. You're better at the computer than I am. So I could look up how old he is, but um, it's been 20 years since that book was published. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if he's still speaking. The thing 78. about- 78. <laughs> oh, wow. So he's young. He's still young. That's young, yeah. and his book is amazing. Yeah, I'm younger every day. I just want to, I want get to one second thing that too. Thank you, Susan. I know um, my, my, my brother Scott Morris said it was a life changing book for him and all my mm-hmm. ministerial friends here, but I think Jews can read it too. Uh, any Christian friends read that book, um, it will uh, affect them. Two more things that I, I don't want to forget that I didn't say um, during the hour. One, I love Ted Koppel, but he blew it in his interview with Pat Robertson years ago when he didn't understand the rapture because the problem with missionizing among Jews, if you think about it, is the end game is the same. It's a world without Jews. So when... When missionaries say they're not anti-Semitic, how dare you? We love Israel. I don't deny that they love Israel, but they need Israel for the Armageddon and the rapture. And what's going to happen is true believers will be lifted up into the air. There will be a holy war and Jews will either convert to Christ or die. So the so the end, someone needs needs to mute because of the, the dog. Um, In the end, as many people will die, according to that theology, as who died in the Holocaust. So the means may be different, but the end, now, Koppel um, did not understand the theology we're talking about tonight. And a lot of Israelis who think that this theology is crazy and whack, they don't really, they're like, God will take care of us in the next life. You know, we take all the friends we can, you know, we need. But missionizing is decried among uh, Catholics and mainline um, Christians because after this history of hatred, the only approach I've heard leaders of national Christian denominations say, the only approach that Christians should make to Jews is on their knees asking for forgiveness. The most powerful lines I ever heard from the head. Um, Now, I didn't want to say that during the hour because it would sound like a polemic and all the people who watch this and hundreds and hundreds do, you know, would think that uh, I don't mean to impose guilt, but the history is clear. And the times we're in have never been, I mean, Germany, where that bad, where that awful incident happened, they have Stolperstein. They have the stumbling blocks. You can't walk around Germany today without hitting a 
a, a, a stone that says from this house, the Stein family was deported to Auschwitz, you know? So I, I think there are positives to um, raise up. And, and in terms of the National Conference of Christians and Jews, many of you remember, it's now, it was named the National Conference. Why not include Muslims? Why not include other religions? Our Hindu brothers, our Buddhist brothers and sisters. Some, one of you had your hand up. So I'm, I'm sorry. I know we'll end in five. Please, Susan. I just wanted to say I put in the chat a place where you can buy a copy of Constantine's sword for less than $5, and that includes shipping. What? I put it in the I put it That's in the amazing. Um, I won't tell because you I have my heart I, back. Own, I have the book, so I don't need it, but I looked it up on Better World Books, and they had yeah. two copies. So if anybody wants to get a copy but doesn't want to spend, you know, what it, you, what it costs to get a new one, God there's a couple you. of couple available there. Just look in the chat. Thanks so much. Now, Great book. before we end, you know, the, the key thing is not to withdraw. Um, you know, I'll share with you offline now that we're offline. Um, I've been at I've been at Rhodes a lot. Um, after the murder of the uh, student and another violent assault um, that hasn't been reported. Um, and I'm really hopeful that we won't just read the news and talk about us and them. The um, recording I hosted today at Crosstown for the Mystic was with Tamika Hart. You remember her, former school board commissioner, Gates Foundation uh, senior officer, and, and Russ Wigginton was the provost of Rhodes College and um, is now the president of National Civil Rights Museum, and Joy Marseille, who is Oasis, a, another amazing person, and um, also African-American. And we were talking about how one should never minimize the pain of Drew's family, but the way to honor Drew is to end violent crime or to address it across the whole city. Because Joy's husband was the teacher at Cummings Elementary whose kid was killed. And Tamika lost five black friends in Memphis who have died. She came out of North Memphis and Raleigh. Um, this epidemic of random violence, which we know is everywhere. And I, I really think we have an opportunity not to talk about why isn't the church doing it or why are they living that way. We, we have an opportunity to really come together and in the best way in, um, that, that our religions and our communities never did before. So I, I think it is a hopeful time, but only if we all lean in and, 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 and really um, address, address this differently than the blame game. Because what often happens with Jewish Christian relations is we blame the Christians, but Germans living today weren't even born when the Holocaust ended. I'm not saying that there aren't the, the, the rise of global anti-Semitism is awful in Poland and Hungary and Germany. I'm not saying that right-wing nationalism, whether it be white Christian nationalism in America, isn't bad, but we tend back to where we started. If you don't know the other, you misperceive the other. 
And that's my fear when it comes to what's happening in Memphis with violent crime. And, uh, but y'all are so awesome to be up with me at 810 um, or 910 in Florida. Thanks for coming. Um, we're gonna continue next Wednesday. We're gonna look at the medieval period. Um, there were no chapters and verses in the Bible until the medieval period. And the reason there had to be chapters and verses was because Jews were called to defend scripture in what were called the disputations where Jews were put on trial. Um, and we'll, we'll see that um, next week. I'll try to make it more hopeful than tonight. I hopefully it wasn't. I, I think the hope is where is this time versus then. Lila Tove, everyone, have a good night and happy new moon. Lila Tove. Thanks Lila for coming. Tov.